Well, hi, thanks for joining us at uh, my new podcast. This is why I got in. It's a show about uh, creatives and artists and professionals that work in the entertainment industry. And today I am very lucky to have a special guest. Uh, she is a director producer. Um, she is known for creating commercials, um, both as a producer and as a, a creative force in that industry. She's worked for people like CoverGirl, Toys R Us, Cialis. Um, she's one of two of the largest uh, commercial ad agencies in uh, the US. Uh, she's a very accomplished director with a number of pieces. She's been able to get in film festivals as well as um, in Cannes and it's on HBO as well. Uh, uh, really great person, really great friend. Uh, I'd like to introduce you all, Tiffany Jackman. Hi, thank you for having me. What a great <laughs> intro. <laughs> Thanks for coming. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to pod with us. Anything for you, Skylar. Anything for you. <laughs> So tell me, um, why did you get into producing? Like, Why did I get into producing? Do you mean like why I got into film in general or why I got into specifically producing? Well, I'll say film in general. Let's start there. Like what was the motivator for you? Well, I've always been um, a storyteller. It's like something I've always liked to do. Even when I was little, I would take my dolls and I would make them into stories. I know all little kids play with dolls, right? But I would, <clears throat> like mine was, my play was different. Like they would have a TV show. The TV shows had different times, just like how you would have on, uh, on TV. And so at like three o'clock, there was one show and the dolls were specific characters in the show. They weren't like the regular, they would be regular dolls at one point, but then when it came time to do the TV show, they had different names. And I would force my little sisters, I had three little sisters growing up, I would force them to sit down and be the audience for my show. So like I was telling stories from an extremely, extremely young age. And as I got older, um, I used to write plays. Um, and then my school had this thing where they would perform a play for the rest of the school once a week. And I would write the plays for my uh, class. And then eventually I started to be recruited to write the plays for the other classes. Um, so involved of playwriting in a, in a little kid kind of fashion. And then um, I started to get frustrated with playwriting because it's, it's really hard to keep the consistency when you're doing a play. Like some one time somebody would forget their lines something from the set would fall or whatever. And so um, eventually someone gave me the idea. They're like, why don't you just film it? That way, like when you get it right, it sticks that way forever. I was mm. like, that makes a lot of sense. And so when I was 12, I got my first camera. I saved up my, my little pennies and my parents and my cousin who worked at Sears at the time helped me out get my first camera. And then I started to make little movies with my sisters and my friends and um, you know, did that all throughout high school and stuff, and then went to NYU, um, majored in film and television. And through that route, I wanted to be more of a director, not even really a producer. But then um, my junior year, we um, had to produce a 10 minute film. And I had a friend, we'll call him a friend, 
at the time uh, that was my producer, but he didn't know, I don't think he understood what it meant to be a producer. He wasn't even a film student. He was actually like this little media mogul or, or not media mogul. He was like a entrepreneur, even while we were in college. And he, um, his idea of producing a film was to like fund the film, which is true. Mm -hmm. Producers need to fund, some producers need to fund the film. But when it came time to doing any of the stuff that needed to be done, to make the film happen. We were shooting on film. I needed help picking up the film. I needed help arranging casting. I needed help with all the different things that go into producing. He was not available to do it. So I had to be both director and producer at that time in my junior year of college. And then after I realized, oh, I could, I could do this. My senior year, I started to produce my friends who were juniors. I started to produce their films. And then I used those to apply to those films that I produced while I was in college to apply to um, uh, this advertising internship program. Um, and, you know, I didn't even have a thought of get, getting into advertising at all. But one of my cousins was in the program before me and he was like, you should try advertising. And I said, why would I try that? I, what, what is, what do you mean advertising? But he said advertising are like mini movies. And so, um, He's like, just try it. Use your film. See if you apply. I applied. It got me into um, Gray Worldwide, huge advertising agency. And from there, that's how I started producing commercials um, and, you know, web videos and stuff for different brands. Was there for about eight years and then went over to Omnicom. Was there for three years. But all on the side, I was producing my own films as well. And those got their own, um, you know, uh, got their own traction getting onto HBO and Amazon and things like that. Um, so long story short, that's kind of how I got into producing in general. Okay. It was kind of like, I never want, really thought about being a producer, but now I'm like addicted to it. So it's, it's been sort of a, sort of a winding journey. Um, there, there are so many things now. I, I liked that you gave that sort of summary at the beginning. So as we talk more, you know, our listeners and viewers can sort of hopefully get some of their other questions answered and, and right. have a direction that they can can kind of pull from from there. Um, I think the first thing that stood out for me listening was uh, the toys. Like um, I did the same exact thing that you were doing, except um, you know, for me it was a uh, you know I knew who the good guys and bad guys were because actually you know I obviously had action figures and. I was setting up plot and story and, mm -hmm. you know, this guy's going to be at the, you know, the good guys always start off at the lair doing something else or right. they're hanging out while the robbery's taking place. And then, you know, putting those pieces of storyline in, into, into motion and action. What, um, one of the points that you made, I think that was really interesting was, uh, you going from using those toys to playwriting. Mm -hmm. What were some of the things that you, I guess, innately, I guess, noticed about story development when you were going from using your inanimate objects to now like playwriting and starting to talk to people? About story development? Well, <laughs> people had opinions <laughs> uh, versus me just making my toys do whatever I want them to do. You know, I started to realize what um, <clears throat> what sounded natural 
you know, like sometimes something is good when you write it down. And then when you hear somebody like actually speak it, you're like, okay, that sounds kind of weird or that wouldn't happen in real life. So I think, you know, the more that you kind of like expose yourself, the more uh, you can better develop your projects. Yeah. Even at a very early age, I kind of learned to adapt things based off of when I saw them in action. What kind of um, like resources did you have around you while you were doing that? Um, well, it, resource, I can't really say it was too many resources. I mean, I had, it was, it was basically like school plays. So like I had my teachers to help look over um, whatever I was writing. You know, I had actors, <laughs> my fellow classmates. And I mean, the biggest thing is I had a platform. That's something you don't really have that much at that age. Like I actually got to see my stuff performed mm -hmm. when I was like, 11 years old like that's you know 11 12 years old that's crazy <laughs> yeah totally um it, it feels like your your voice actually has a meaning or has some yeah. type of power what um you said you were 11 or 12 yeah yeah it was at my you know you know am i allowed to say the school <laughs> I mean, if you want to, you don't have to give shout outs to anybody. You don't want to shout out. Well, I mean, it was, uh, it was a, um, it was a Atlanta based Christian private school. If you really look me up, you can find it. Um, but so, um, yeah, so I was like in, well, maybe 12, no, more like 12, 13, I think I was like in eight, uh, seventh, eighth grade, eighth grade or so. Mm -hmm. um so we were performing you know they had this thing once a week it was called the chapel program where you would, uh, one class would put on uh like mostly religious-based performance for the rest of the school and they had to come up the class had to come up with the performance themselves and so um i came up with the performance for my class and then other teachers were like oh you guys came up with a good play and then i got recruited to like help the other classes with their performances as well Got you. So I think uh, um, it's important to kind of acknowledge what resources we have, because I think um, there's always this idea that there's this, there are barriers of entry, sure. Mm -hmm. But to understand the process of going from um, a child with an idea of wanting to do something to actually being able to do it and seeing what those steps visibly look like for people who are on the outside looking in. So I'm trying to paint a little bit of that picture here. Um, and I also ask because I think it's important to show that, um, you know, at that age with storytelling, be it whatever the medium you give them, um, children will really start to develop and sharpen an interest. Like, so at what point did you really, was it when your plays got on, was that the point in your mind that clicked that like, this could be something I could do as a profession or was there another moment that made that distinguisher for you I think I think when I was able to see something actually perform more than just like in my um, in my living room with my toys I think that's when I started to realize like hey is this something that it can go outside of myself if that makes sense yeah yeah um, I don't know if I was necessarily making it be a profession but it went more from just play mm-hmm um, it actually became a thing, a real thing. Yeah. What, um, obviously you did not have your run of, uh, 
story. You know, you had some guidelines and stories that you wanted to tell, but what were the type of stories that you wanted to say or wanted to talk about at that age that you maybe didn't feel like you got a chance to voice? I mean, we, I definitely had, I guess that gave me preparation for working for a client, I guess you could say, because, you know, they all had to have like some type of moral, um, moral spin to them. Um, a lot of them had to do with like, you know, the Christian values, being good to your neighbor, you know, things like that. Um, I think at that age, you're very young, young and impressionable. And I don't think I had any, like, maybe if I was older, I would have wanted to tell grittier stories, <laughs> I guess you could say. But at that age, I I didn't feel any limitations on what story I can tell, because for the most part, you know, you're young and innocent and don't know too much about. Some right, of what, you, what you know is what you talk about. Exactly. I, and I was talking about what I know, like, you know, and the plays were very, they're, they're kid-like, don't steal. Mm. Like, a lot of them were, like, based off, like, the Ten Commandments, treat your neighbor with respect you know, um, very, very, there were just short plays and very much like what I was being taught anyway and just putting it in play form. Mm -hmm. So besides um, the obvious heavy, like religious influence, what was the, the culture like around you? What was your, your background like in the household as well as like, you know, within your, your, your classmates and the people that you were seeing every day? Yeah, um, so my background, my um, family is from Guyana, small country in South America. So I am a, a first generation American. Um, that comes with its own set of values, uh, I could say. Um, you know, raise, being raised in an immigrant household, you have a, and when being a first generation American, you do have a lot of pressure on you to like say, su succeed. You know, my parents told me very many times growing up, we came here with nothing but a suitcase. So, and you're in this country that everything is available to you. So you're going to go to college. You're going to make something of yourself, you know? And so there's a lot of like, everybody's looking at you because I'm the first person to be raised in the American school system, you know, expected to do very, very well. Um, they had a lot of moral values that kind of was backed up within the school that I went to. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, just like working hard, I think, was one of the big things that I was raised under. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess one of the first things I thought about, um, you typically hear this story of like uh, the first generation kids and they say, go get a good job. Right? Yeah. And typically good jobs to parents, I mean, I know for mine, and we're, we're like um, somewhere stable with benefits, with a yeah. VA. What type of pushback did you see, if any, when you wanted to go into art? Because typically, you know, art's sort of a... Yeah, well, you know, art. you know what's amazing about my, my parents um, is that in that sense, they broke the immigrant parent mold. Hmm. They never told me what I could and couldn't do. They never said, we want you to be a doctor, we want you to be a lawyer, we want you to go into banking. I think a lot of my uh, family members, my cousins got that push, but you know, and what's funny is that they didn't do that, you know, and 
all of my sisters, there are four of us, we all ended up going into the arts. They basically did not give us any, like, you had to do this. It's, the only thing was, like, you had to get good grades. Whatever mm -hmm. you're going to do, like, you need to go and be the best at it. That's the only, like, stipulation they had. But they definitely gave us the freedom to do what we wanted. And then we just, I think, naturally gravitated to the arts. So much so that, like, my parents used to joke, they're like, we don't know where these four came from because my dad was a software developer and my mom was a banker. And they're like, but we have four children in the arts. I'm a producer director. My sister, Carice, is not in the arts, but she's on the news. So she's in, in like TV. Right. The, other, the third one is a writer and the youngest one is in musical theater. <laughs> None of us went into banking. <laughs> Wow. or software development although i do think i pull from a lot of the things that you know i think banking and stuff is in me like because mm -hmm. i take a lot of those producing you're dealing with a lot of line items you're dealing with a lot of numbers yes i'm yeah. still i still have to do excel spreadsheets but <laughs> it's not what i have to do every day but like i'm really really good at numbers and i think that comes from you know that's like ingrained in me um, and also teaching, you know, that's a big thing in my family too. And that, that's become a part of my life also. Right. We're going to, we're going to get to that in a minute. I'm not going to get to that yet. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so immigrant household, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we explicitly said it, but we grew up in Atlanta. Right. Yes. And then you moved to New York. Yes. Well, I was born in, I was born in New York, actually. Okay. Here's what. Here's where we're going to fight, because this <laughs> <laughs> okay. for, for friends, and I know you grew up in Atlanta, I always, I always like to fight you on this and say, yeah, you, you, you came out of the hospital in New York, but you spent your life in Atlanta. What was maybe the difference um, in your upbringing here in Atlanta versus when you moved uh, back to New York, where you never lived? and <laughs> started going to NYU and exploring that um that whole journey um so okay so let's start with I think I have to combine immigrant household and Atlanta because there um when you're an immigrant and you're a first generation immigrant you may live somewhere but until you actually start going to school and stuff you're basically like my house is basically like little guyana you know <laughs> like i eat guyanese i eat guyanese food when i was very little um people told me i had a guyanese accent you know so like um i'm i lived in atlanta but um like some of the flavors of atlanta i wasn't really exposed to until i got old enough that i could go to my friend's house and eat southern food and stuff like that yeah. if that makes sense mm -hmm. so um i don't and even when i lived in new york and when i would go back during the summers i still you know when you come to this country you kind of still live in your little pocket immigrant pocket neighborhoods so right. um i felt very much like a Guyanese person even being here in the States in general. So okay. that's that's one thing I have to preface about like the Atlanta, New York, like being a Guyanese immigrant was a big part of that too. Um, but then, okay, so, but when it comes from moving from Atlanta to New York, I think it's just like my world got bigger 
in terms of, um, you know, my career because, and I, it was a little bit of a culture shock too. Um, it, it culture shocked in terms of career because like my school that I went to didn't have any like editing facilities. It was a small Christian private school. So like I was the only one that was leaving there. I was the only one interested in film. Let's for one. Um, and I was the only one leaving there to go to New York. So that's, one thing. So I didn't have, when I, and then when I went to NYU, you know, I was pushed in with all these kids that had all these, all this experience already because they had film programs in their high school, you know? So I did feel, I actually felt a little bit behind, to be honest. Like I, they came in there knowing how to edit, already working with all these high-end cameras based off of like what they had in school. And so, you know, I felt like I had, and a lot of them, you know, NYU is like, no, it was, it's either the number one or number two film school in the country at any, for any given year, it competes with USC. Right. So like, if you want to be in film, you go there. And a lot of like celebrities kids go there. I won't name like, I, well, I went to school with like the Olsen twins, although they ended up getting dropped out, <laughs> getting dropped out. Um, that, you know, went to school with, uh, I was in there with Chevy Chase's daughter, you know, like, so, you know, you go there and it's this whole bigger world. You know, one of the editing professors was Spike Lee's editor, you know? So it's just, it was a little bit of a culture shock at first, but then um, after a while, you know, you start to, once you get over that part, you start to realize that it still comes down to the story at the end. I, my stories could still live up to everybody else's stories, even though, you know, maybe some of the technical stuff I had to catch up on, was, which was going to happen eventually, you know. So I think that was the biggest difference is, you know, exposing yourself to a whole bigger world. So when you, so we can paint a picture for the people because I, I, I want them to understand, like, the difference inside. Like, what was your graduating classes size versus <laughs> your first you know, like when they do your, the, the freshman walk in, they give you the whole look left, look right. These people are going to be here versus, you know, that like in college. What was like the size difference? Oh my gosh, massive. Like my graduating class from high school was 15 students. That's how small my school was. And I don't even know how many people, like I think my graduating class from NYU was probably... 5,000 I don't I don't even know it was in the thousands mm. you know so it was it was a big difference like you know I would go in and my um lecture classes were bigger than my uh, entire graduating class of high school yeah the huge huge difference you know um but the difference between living in New York and living in Atlanta that didn't really bug me too much because I was already I was used to like going up there spending the summers there anyway so I didn't really have a culture shock in that way. I think I had more of a career shock. Mm. Okay. Yeah. You know, and especially because you kind of come from, you know, being in such a small school and, you know, you know, being the only filmmaker at that school, the only kid writing the plays at that school to like going and just being one of <laughs> a sea of very, very talented kids. You know? Right. You are no longer special once you go up there. <laughs> So how did how did you work through that and how did you combat that while you were there? Because I mean, now you're in this new environment. None of your you don't even have friends. You know, like your support system is totally different now. Like, you know, what was right. what was that process? Um, it's the same. I think I 
pulled on that whole immigrant background just work hard you know like my parents came here no my parents came to an entire country knowing nobody you know so why can't i go to a school and know Mm -hmm. nobody and still make it you know that's a great attitude to have i think so many people are afraid to um just jump out and try something um you never know what opportunities may await you on the other side, you know? Exactly. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, even though some of the kids that I've gone to school with have like more connections and stuff at the baseline of it, it all comes down to, we still all have the same, you have two arms, two legs and a mind, you know, that's all you basically need. And, you know, being able to come up with a story that doesn't, that it doesn't matter what connections you have, you still, it just still comes down to the story that you can come up with at the end. So, so I'm, I agree with you, but I'm also going to disagree with you. Okay. Talk about sort of the social advantages of like connections and how that, you know, like you said, you were going, you went to school with the Olsen twins who already had a full television career. Yeah. As an example, they're going to school as a formality. Right. Yeah, I went to with I went to school with a lot of kids who went to school as a formality. As a, as a formality, so like, in an industry where you have those people who already have access, and then you have those people who are interested or have ideas, where does that sort of line of what things get made, and how do you, how do you get your your to the place you want to be and get the thing that you want? made done gotcha um so the thing is that if you already have like if you're going to school as a formality you already have those connections you know you're going to get the attention first right Mm -hmm. i think if you because you know you know this person steven spielberg is your uncle whatever you're going to get the attention first but it's still at the baseline of it it's still the thing that you're trying to get their attention for they still have to see the value in it and if if i think if the story is not there then it's still not going to do well you just get the attention first but um i think you just have to work just a little bit harder when you don't have those connections and you you have to go through a different route of like entering things into film festivals and things like that to get your attention another way but you'll eventually get there it is it is easier if you if your uncle is Steven Spielberg, yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. I wish I had an uncle, Uncle Steven. Yeah, I wish I had an uncle Steven too. Steve, Steve if you want to adopt us, we're uh, <laughs> we're open for adoption. You want to adopt a thirty-four-year-old? So, what? Um, everyone talks about like the the school of hard knocks. Like, what are the hard knocks of filming in New York? Like, what were the things that you really had to, like, oh, shit, this is going to be a thing that I've got to learn quick and hard that you figured out about working and shooting doing projects there? That may be different from, like, a school where, uh, you know, you're in Atlanta or you're in, you know, a, a state school off in the country and you've got a whole campus versus being in the city. Yeah. Um, I'd say one of the things up here is that 
Um, and it's not just like in school, it's like in general, like everybody's kind of, and I think you would have the same issue in LA where everybody's kind of film savvy. Mm -hmm. anyway, so like, let's say if I was in some like small town in Virginia or something like that, and I needed to do a film shoot and I wanted to film in a restaurant, you know, I could just go to my local restaurant and be like, hey, I'm going to make a film. And they'll be all excited and um, to let you use their restaurant <laughs> in New York. They're like, okay, yeah, someone was here last week. I'm going to need $5,000 for you to use this for half a day. You know? So um, it's stuff like that where it's like, um, you know, people, crews and things are more expensive here, um, you know, because everybody who's here is has like left with their hometown and mm -hmm. has built a career for themselves and it's expensive to live here so you know things like that are just everything is like more expensive here people are more film savvy you don't get as many favors up here right um, you know uh, do it, you saying that you're making a film is not anything special <laughs> mm. they're used to it so i think that's uh, that's you just have to find other ways to like get around that okay so with that said, what was your Diddy in the City moment when you were in college? Like some crazy thing that you had to do to go across town or shoot across the world or go somewhere to get a prop and bring it back and get it. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, this wasn't in college. This was when I was an intern at, at the ad, ad agency. Um, they had, uh, we were doing an E-Trade commercial and before they focused on the E-Trade baby by themselves, they were showing different people trading in their like living room, almost like they were doing enough webcams and they were, I don't know why, where this idea came from, but they wanted to do one where a guy was trading and he was like in a bathrobe and there was a blow up doll that was supposed to be his girlfriend in the mm. corner. And of course they send the young intern to go and pick up a blow up doll. And I had no, I was like, you want me to do what? Like, <laughs> so I was like, where could I? So I had to like, see, I had to go to like this, like CD store in the West Village where all the like sex shops are and go and find this blow up doll. I was, and, and you know me, I'm so like, I'm not conservative, but I'm such a goody two shoes. Yeah. What is this? <laughs> Uh, I paid money to see that. <laughs> I know you would have. <laughs> and so I had to go there, went into the store, and I was like, I'm um, looking for a blow-up doll. And they just looked at me. I was like, it's not for me. And the lady was like, uh-huh. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's funny is that the West Village, I was just a year out of college, and the um, West Village is very near to NYU. Right. And so I was just like praying praying to every god out there that none of my friends would walk past and see me walking out of this store. Oh my god, that would have been hilarious. <laughs> like, so, the shot was really you walking out of the store with a fully blown, blown up doll. Luckily, oh. those the store gave you the type of bags that are really discreet. Yeah. So know what was in it. So I got the bag. It was like a dark blue bag. I, even, I remember all of this. Got out of that store as quickly as possible before I could run into any of my uh, college friends, went back to the office and was like, here, please don't ever make me do that again. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So while we're on this topic, 
Okay. From, from sex dolls. Why are you working at <laughs> that? <laughs> Glove doll. Um, you did a lot of commercials for pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. and pills. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about like what working with that type of stuff is like. Um, very, very detailed. Very much. Um, so, as a producer, your job is to make sure everything is like correct, right? And so, with pharmaceuticals, um, you have to be very exact. You can't say that something will uh, solve your problem if it's just might, right? So, mm-hmm. like, as a producer, you have to make sure that everything is like said correctly. You have to make sure that every side effect is um, is mentioned. You know, if you heard, all uh, it's of- like it's like journalism. Yeah, kind of, because it's very, very influenced by what the client's legal department says is okay. Or like, if you look at closely at a depression, depression medicine commercial, you'll see that the person is never really smiling big, right? Because it doesn't get rid of your depression. It kind of just manages it. Like, so Mm -hmm. like, it's little things like that, that you have to pay attention to. And those can be some of the challenges and working in a pharmaceutical commercial you're very your hands are tied a lot by what you can do so so where do they think of the creatives for some of these commercials because some of the how do you put this some of the uh messaging that goes along with the side effects is like crazy you'll see someone like flying a kite yeah <laughs> <While> um, you're <laughs> Um, we're talking about like bleeding from the from from the butt or yeah <laughs> or something you know like where do they come up with the creative um, yeah. well, so, I, I, for people who are not um, really don't know too much how the ad agency work they have entire departments called the creative departments that you know they have the people who are the writers who write the idea for the commercials and then the art directors who come up with the design or how it's supposed to look. So um, they have their usually, and then usually once it's approved, then it comes to me to actually produce it, make it happen for whatever budget you have set aside. So the creative team, especially if it's in pharma, has, they come up with these ideas for months, running it by the client, running it by the client's legal department. um, and, And then they eventually settle on an idea and then it comes to me to produce. So I don't know exactly about their full process about what they do, but I know that, you know, a lot of times the, the side effects portion of it takes so long that they usually put something in there that they could stick on that shot for a long time. So like you said, flying a kite, walking a dog, cooking, you know, you know they're, on, they're on the bicycles together it's <laughs> not that you can be on for a long time because because uh, you don't know how long because sometimes they start adding even more side effects to it after you shot so you're like oh loop that bike shot yeah. <laughs> cut some more carrots <laughs> you know keep chopping celery keep chopping celery <laughs> celery and if it's a if it's like a diabetes commercial cooking healthy food is very important in there right that celery no juice drink some water (laughs) exercise so what was your favorite or most fun commercial to work on um i think the campaign that i did for playtex 
passport where I got to go to South Africa was probably okay. my most fun one. I mean, the campaign of itself was fun, but like, yes. And that was one of my favorite parts of advertising was being able to travel all over the world with it. So I got to spend like two weeks in South Africa, which in Cape Town, which was like one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. So wow, yeah, it was just like a trip to top, which I don't know if I will ever top. It was just so lovely. And I felt at home when I was there too, like riding down the street and seeing billboards and the people look like me, you know, every billboard, it's, it was just different. Yeah. 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 That was my first time in Africa in general. So. Really? So that's, yeah. um, I remember, um, Richard Pryor did a bit about that back uh-huh. today, about how, um, the first time he went over there, it was it was him feeling different and noticing that uh, the entire time he was there, as an example, he said he, he never used the N word. Yeah, because it was all it was just all us, as an example. Right. And what was something that you, while you were on that commercial, what was a highlight for you professionally, and then what was something that you learned personally? Mm, um a highlight for me professionally oh when the director the director of that commercial knew that i wanted to be a director as well and he let me direct the underwater scenes nice it was a um five spot commercial i mean a five spot campaign where you had people in different sports like we had a soccer one a track one a swim one I actually got to put on a scuba diving costume and got to go underwater and do some of the underwater shots and direct the actors there. So like, and this is a big name director that has like directed a lot of like Olympic style, like uh, sports shoots and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he like, let me direct the scene of that. And that was just, that was awesome because one of the downsides of working in like a big corporation like a big advertising agency is that there's not a whole lot of flexibility. It's like you're a producer, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, when working for a big corporation, they don't really, you know, as much as they might say that they want you to follow your passions, like at the end of the day, you got to make money for them. And so to get that opportunity while on a shoot for that company to be able to direct, that was like a big highlight of my of my career very still appreciated that till this day so the other part of the other that was the professional part what was the the personal highlight the person i think the personal highlight was just being there in south africa like like experience being able to experience that place was it's it's something that i can't top it's just an awesome awesome place to be Okay. I don't know. I didn't, maybe you rid a giraffe or... Oh, I pet baby cheetahs. That was cool. Pet, oh, that's fine. Yeah, I got to meet baby cheetahs. I have a picture of that on Facebook. That was... Uh-huh. Um, I went to this uh, market there where all these um, women were like, I think they were making bread or something. And then they just all like broke out into song. It was so beautiful. Like, <laughs> it, yeah, it was just awesome. Definitely want to go back there as soon as I can. Yeah. What was uh, 
what's been your experience being um, a female and a, a black female, you know, minority in um, the in like the produce like in the office and in the entertainment industry? How's that been? What is your? It's been, you know, I've had, a, it was, it's been interesting, actually, like, um, I know people talk about the challenges and stuff. I haven't, I've been, I think, I haven't noticed it that much. Really? Um, actually, when I was in advertising, a lot of the other producers were female producers. There weren't that many black female producers, but the, but I did have two of those that were, that came out to be very good mentors for me. Mm -hmm. um but you know i didn't really have any issues with um you know being a female producer in the ad in the ad world um i had my own things with like uh not understanding why things were certain ways <laughs> i remember especially when it comes to advertising i remember one of my first uh, assignments while i was in advertising was to make uh commercial make radio commercials and i forgot what the brand was but they wanted me to do a general market brand commercial and then in the aa commercial okay american commercial and i just didn't understand why i needed to do that like the aa commercial had like urban music on it and they wanted the the actors to sound more urban and i was like I don't, I really don't get it, especially being the way that I was raised, which so, so proper, you know, my, my family being from Guyana, they were raised under the British uh, school system because Guyana was a colony of Britain and so of uh, England. And so like, I wasn't allowed to use slang growing up. Like it was, I'm very, very proper. I don't, I saw, so I just did not understand. I was like, why, what? You want him to talk like what? Like, why? They put the um, Robert Townsend Hollywood shuffle on it. Yeah, I, I just, I didn't get it, you know? I, and I, don't, I didn't understand what was the purpose of that. I, I still don't understand what's the purpose of like, just because a black person is on the commercial you think that white people won't buy it like why can't it just just and i was like why can't you just make one commercial you're spending money doing the same commercial twice it to me it didn't make sense that was one of the so, when they were when they were redoing those were they doing like full recasts and everything to yeah. basically shoot the same commercial just with two different demos literally same commercial two different demos we it'd be the same house that we were shooting in and just taking out one cast and putting it in, doing the same thing over. So you doubled your number of shoot days. Wow. It just like, to me, financially, it didn't make sense. Hmm. Or like, and to me too, like if it was an ensemble cast, right? Like not a family cast or whatever. I'm like, why can't you just make it like a mixed cast? Why does right. it have to be one group of white friends and then another group of black friends? Like it's, it just did not make sense to me. The only time it did make sense was when it was like a Pantene commercial because you do have different hair. I understand that, but right. <laughs> that like I didn't see any need to do an urban versus a general market commercial. Yeah, and that's that's something that's still happening today. Like that's still typical standard practice. That's 
yeah i mean yeah because if you if you look on like some of the more urban channels if you look at bet you'll see that they have like commercials with all black people in it right right and then but you might find a similar commercial on cbs or whatever <laughs> so then how do how do things like um you know like the h&m commercials and and <laughs> <laughs> yeah and those happen how does that happen you know from well, the biggest reason those things happen is because there's not a black person in that room when the creatives are coming up with it to be like, oh, you probably shouldn't put call the little black boy a monkey. That's no, that, that that won't go well. It just I still feel like you know, although I saw some black people in the advertising world, I don't think a lot of them are in those position those decision making positions. Mm -hmm. I don't think enough of them are in in the room where they can say like, hey, that might be offensive, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's the issue. Like someone needs to cross check things because, you know, through doing commercials, there are so many layers that you go through before it goes on TV, right? So that's why I don't have any sympathy for a bad commercial because I'm like, well, I know that it was done by the creative team, right? I know that after the baseline creative team did it, then there, then the executive creative directors had to see it, right? Then it had to go on to the client. Then the client's bosses had to watch it. Then they had to approve it. Then uh, if it's pharma, it had to go through legal, right? So that's just like, that's six oh, layers. That's six layers right before, there. Before you get to before you get uh, on TV. editing, before you get to transmissions checks. <laughs> like before it gets out of like the cluster of people who are creating it. Yeah. So by the time it gets to TV, so many eyeballs have been on it. But if there was not one of those eyeballs is a black person with some awareness then it's just going to keep sliding through and it's not even that the people are necessarily being racist it's just they're not they're not thinking about it that way mm -hmm. you know so that's my thing that's that's what happens that's what happens it's just so, not somebody in the room to call it out in a in a roundabout way you sort of gave a list of like 60 jobs yeah Um, most in which the general public are not even aware of that exist. How does one find their way into those positions? Because, you know, we say diversity is important. We say being in the room is important, but if you don't even know that that room exists, like how do you, how do you, yes, start to put yourself in that room? Well, I didn't know that a lot of those rooms in advertising existed until I actually got an advertising internship you know like I said I wasn't even thinking about advertising in general um, until my cousin told me about this internship opportunity and how they might they need people with filmmaking backgrounds to be there and then once I got in I saw like oh those are the people that write it those are the people that come up with the um, with the designs of it you know you need graphic designers you need all of this um, so I think the biggest thing is like probably just going to school and exposing yourself to more more people, 
mm-hmm. you know, um, joining networking groups and just seeing what other people do, especially entertainment networking groups. You'll find people from all sorts of stuff. You'll find people in advertising, you'll find people in music, and you'll just, just ask them what they do. Sometimes when I, because I, I also teach and a lot of the students don't even know what a producer does. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I teach, the kids come in and when I ask them who do they know in film, they just call out the actors. But then by the end of the class, like the end of the whole semester, they realize how many jobs there are in film in general, like how many jobs there are on a film crew and then how many jobs that go into advertising, you know? So they, they leave with, you know, an idea of like what's, what's possible and then where they would probably like to go, like what they most gravitate to. Yeah, I think uh, that's like probably one of the most important things and that that one-on-one is the exposure. Um, mm-hmm. I, my reason for getting into entertainment was because I thought I wanted to be talent. Um, right. The difference for me, I think, was uh, I did not like the audition process. Mm-hmm. I won't even say not the, the audition process because it's not necessarily the audition because you know you can know that you killed an audition or that you did something really well i didn't like the subjectiveness of waiting to be picked yeah and how i guess the word is like the favorites can be played mm-hmm. in certain arenas so you know if i i don't like the way you look today i don't you know, something about your smile did something that I just didn't like, so I didn't pick you, even though you had the better performance. So, I, you know, I was very aware and worried that I'll be one of those um, talents waiting for someone to discover me or give me my, my break. And right. I was fortunate enough that someone introduced me to uh, the television side of it, because for me, it kind of uh, put everything together. You know, I, I was an athlete. Uh, I was into all the arts. So, um, from my side of it, people basically the pressure was you have to pick something. <laughs> you're gonna be a musician? Are you gonna be a singer? Are you gonna be you, you want to go to school for art? You need to pick something because mm-hmm. like my focus was all over the place and. Television or broadcast, it was like, oh, well, today you get to sing, and you know, in the church setting, you get singers, you get actors, you get speakers, uh, <laughs> kind of get a corporate, you know, seminar type situation because you know, you've got one speaker in a room full of people, and there are just a lot of ways that I saw that, oh, I can do everything if I do this, right? Um, that was kind of the the fast track of how I find my way into um, doing production, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's it's interesting because you don't we're only typically exposed to talent. I mean, I think when we were coming up, and it's not that long ago, you got to think um, behind the scenes was the the new thing to put on DVDs. Right, right. Yeah, no one even knew what was no. happening behind the scenes. They didn't even know that you used the camera to shoot the movie. Like, (laughs) 
so um, I think the knowledge and awareness of uh, the profession that it's not just a creative profession. Like I got into the profession to be creative. So um, my pursuits and my happiness within the career is based on me getting to be creative, not necessarily me being technical. Um, so talk a little bit about those different thought patterns and the different types of people that you will encounter within this profession. Um, like personality types or? Yeah, I mean the personality types, I mean the, the career types, because I mean, like I said, in my aspect, I'm thinking more creatively in right. producing. There are creative people that produce, but there's also like people yeah. literally do line items and yeah. phone calls and organizational stuff. So kind of paint a picture from your perspective of what these different sort of um, personality filters are within production. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so, well, I could say the different types of producers that kind of allude to what you were saying just now. Like, there, there are definitely, like, some producers, producers who have different styles, mm -hmm. I guess you could say. There are some producers who are, like, line item producers, budget producers, the producers who are really, really good at making sure everything is legal, the producers who are um, the ones who are going to get all that paperwork across every T, dot every I, you know, there's that type of producer. Um, and some of those are some of the more old school producers too, right? But mm -hmm. then there's, there are also the producers who are kind of like me, who I am detail oriented, things like that. But sorry but I'm also very much of a creative producer like my goal isn't just to like get things within the budget right my goal is to make sure if I'm producing making sure the director's vision is getting made too like I'm a creative person so I, I want to see the creative live you know if he right. wants a certain location the one that he sees in his head as a director I want to get him that location you know Mm -hmm. And I'll find a way to work the budget around to make that happen. You know, I'm not just crossing every, like, crossing off, like, oh, I got a location. I want to make sure that, like, it's the location that's going to make the film look good, you know? Right. Make sure that, like, if the DP says that this is the camera they need to achieve this look, I want to make sure that they get that camera, not just a camera. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that make sense? It does. Uh, yeah. So, in, in that, give me this thought, because... Um, in production, there are there are people that work in the office. This is gonna be me as a production person on, uh -huh. on that doing my fuss. There are people that work in the office that have never been on set, mm -hmm. right? And they think to themselves, "That's not important. They don't need that extra tripod, or I'm not spending that that much money on that location." They need to go somewhere else right Talk to them and explain to them why it's important that they not cut those corners on their set crew right yeah because they at the end of the day you're making you're making this art even if it's for a commercial you're making this art and so if you want the piece to be successful then you need to give the crew what they need to make it happen. 
you know? So I would encourage those people to get out of the office and go to the set, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, there, now there are some times in the producer's defense that um, certain uh, uh, crew members could just be divas and just want to get some something because they want to play with that toy. And the thing, oh, one of the things I would say too is that to be a really like good producer, you at some point should do each of those jobs. Mm-hmm. And so one, so that you know how important some of these things are. And two, so that you know when someone is really trying to pull the wool over your eye and when they're not. Like I love, cause in college, I they made us do every single job. I had to be a gaffer at one point, had to be a grip at one point, had to be the boom operator at one point. All three of those jobs I have no interest in doing and I will make sure that those people are paid handsomely because I have no interest in holding the boom over my shoulder for all those hours, none. You know, so I make sure that person is handsomely paid because I don't want to do it. But, you know, because I've had an opportunity to work for it in all of those things, I have respect for those people. And then I also know what equipment they kind of need. And so I'm not gonna just let them, I'm also not gonna let them like ask for a $8,000 tripod when I know that that tripod can, that other tripod that's $1,000 can do the same thing. Like, you know, so there's a healthy balance like into what is gonna make your project successful and giving them what they need versus you blowing the budget on something just because someone is just trying to be, <laughs> I don't even know what to even call them. But <laughs> So what are your pet peeves as a producer? What are my pet peeves as a producer? Laziness. Mm-hmm. Cutting, cutting corners are my biggest pet peeves. Like, I'm, I've worked very, very hard, and I expect everybody to put in the same dedication like i would smack someone if they say fix it in post i'm like no you do it right right now you know like i don't i can't i can't stand that um and then also i can't stand uh diva attitudes from anybody i like green m&ms well i'm sorry like no i don't take diva attitudes from crew I don't take diva attitudes from actors. I don't care who you are. Like, because I've worked with celebrities too. I'll I'll fire anybody if they make them if they make it difficult to work with them on set. I I really don't care. And also, um, people who um, defy safety, you mm-hmm. know, to get the shot. I I I I won't stand for that either. So, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely important. Mm-hmm. People take for granted uh, or may not even be aware that a lot of um, TV sets are basically construction sites. They basically have built places or in some other instances half torn down places that they thought were artfully interesting <laughs> exactly there's so many you know i've heard of people losing eyes because the c-stands weren't covered like mm. you know uh what happened yep. to the uh the girl who was killed in the train tracks because the director wanted that shot you know like it's not worth it we're still just playing pretend at the end of the day like yeah you know 
the shot is not as important as making sure everybody's safe. Right. Yeah. So with that said, um, you did a short about safety where it was a little boy at home called mm-hmm. his mother. Yes. Talk about the difference between what you do in commercials um, at on the agency level versus what your motivation and thought process was behind making that piece. Making that one particular piece? Yeah. Um, I think moving into the more moving into the more film film no. narrative side of things. Yeah. So whether I don't I ha, I didn't really plan for me to kind of take this type of route in the stories that I've chosen to tell as a film as a filmmaker, but I've kind of fallen into it. Um, I tend to do more social justice style films. Um, mm-hmm. So like that film was about it was called Little Big Men. It's a short film. Um, it's it's about two little boys who were who had to be left home alone at night while their mom worked, right? She was a single mom. It was based off, roughly based off of an article I read in the newspaper about these uh, little kids that were in a house fire um, and they were left home alone at night while the mom had to go work in a restaurant. And people were bashing the mom, right? Because you're like, how could you leave your kids at home? But then I, you know, I wanted to go deeper into it. I'm like, well, no mom, no good mom is gonna want to leave her kids home alone. But like, what if you had to decide between, you know, leaving your kids, being with your kids at home and not having the money to feed them mm-hmm. and keep a roof over their head or leaving them home for alone for a few hours so that you can provide for them, you know? So I wanted to tell them. They should be sleeping. Yeah, while they should be sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. So in my story, she left the two boys at home alone and... She um, went out to work and then robbers broke into the house. So I basically wanted to tell the story of like, set it up like this. And then what is that parent's worst nightmare? Mm -hmm. Like hearing the robbers break in um, at night while she's on the phone with one of the old, with the older kid. Right. So um, basically what I've done as I've transitioned into the filmmaking is telling stories for people who can't speak for themselves. So my first feature film um, that I produced is called Inquisition of Camillo Sands. And it's about this guy who's grown up in New York his whole life, but gets his deportation notice because he was brought here illegally as a baby. And mm. then life like spirals out of control as he fights to stay in the only country he's ever known. Wow. And one of the reasons I resonated, my friend, um, John Marco Lopez wrote the story. Um, he is, his family immigrated from Colombia. Like I said, my family immigrated from Guyana. And the reason that story resonated with me was because I was born here, right? But just by a few months. So it's, to me, for someone to want to send me to Guyana, I would not know what to do. Like, I'm American by all, by all sense. And so let's just say that I wasn't born here, but I came here at three months old. Like, I don't think it's fair for me to be sent back, you know? And so um, I wanted to do a story to speak for those people. And throughout the story, the guy ends up having to marry an American girl 
for money. I mean, so that he can get his papers. He ends up having to pay her to uh, marry him. Then he ends up going from this guy who had actually like gone to college, gotten a job and being a stand-up kid that just doesn't have his like legal status to having to go into this seedy underworld of crime just to stay in the only country he's ever known. And, you know, growing up in like around the immigrant community, because I had my American status, I'd been approached, I've been approached quite a few times to like marry people for money. And so I know that situation and I know that those people don't speak about it. And I think um, through that and the other films, I want to do films for people who don't feel like they can speak to themselves. Because I think as a filmmaker, you have like, you have this great opportunity to introduce people to worlds that they don't get to get, go into. Mm. And I, I think you should take that responsibility seriously and expose them to those worlds that they don't get to go into. Because you, when, is your average Joe going to be sitting in an immigrant household like that and seeing what they might go through? So, you know, so there, that was my uh, first feature. Um, recently shot a feature about this, it's called, um, oh, why am I, Paradise City. <laughs> um, and it's about this guy who is a detective in the New York City Police Department. Um, and he gets promoted to the counterterrorism unit and his, uh, his first assignment is to infiltrate a mosque and see if there's any terrorist activity going on in there. But then once he gets in, he realizes these are, he gets to know the people in there. He realizes these are actually lovely people. And then when he, as he gets deeper into it, he realizes that the government is actually doing things to radicalize them so that they can swoop in and say, hey, we stopped this ter potential terrorist attack. When he decides he wants no part of it, government turns on him and labels him a terrorist. Mm. And, um, but through the crux of that story, you get to see how these people live, right? Mm -hmm. Like, when else am I going to go and sit with a Muslim family and see how they live and see that, you know, they're just normal people just like any of the rest of us. And so, you know, like those films, and I've, I have a few others, I've kind of drifted into this social justice kind of tinge to my filmmaking, which is something I could not do in advertising. I just was given assignments and had to do the commercials. But now I'm getting, and as I've gotten um, deeper into my career and more experience, I'm a, more picky about what I choose to do. Mm -hmm. And um, and I tend to be, I tend to choose things and I'm like, okay, why does this story need to be told? Um, and th that goes in, even into the TV show that I'm doing right now called The System. Um, it's about what happens when the drug war seeps into the suburbs and it goes into the crux of the drug war or the beginning of the drug war, which was meant to get rid of the people who weren't going to vote for Nixon, which were the hippies and the black people and the repercussions of it till this day. Um, mm -hmm. And how the police target minority kids for the same things that white kids do. So. Right. The, yeah, that's, um, a huge part of what our society has been since the mid eighties. So, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, that's dope. When, when is that project coming out or how's that process been? Yeah. Well, that project, it actually got a limited distribution deal with um, a streaming service called Quelly TV. Okay. Um, look it up there, quellytv.com. Um, and so basically they licensed the pilot. So you can go on there and view 30 minute pilot. Um, 
And um, what we're trying to do right now is get funding for the rest of the season. Um, so we either get funding and keep it on Quelly, but it's a um, it's not an exclusive distribution deal. So if Netflix wants to come and they love the show and want to like help us produce the rest of the season, we can do we can do that. Um, but we basically we have that pilot already shot. We have the first season already written, and we have what's called a story bible, which is where you say what the rest of the show is going to be like. We have it projected for five seasons. Uh, the way, the, yeah, the way I like to operate is I don't like my shows like going off into oblivion. I want to know like the story is going to start here. This is, is going to end here. And through that, the characters are going to have their arcs. They're going to learn. They're going to grow. And then we leave out on a high note. So mm -hmm. I want to stay at those five seasons. Or are we? Or are we? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it's going to be five seasons. I'm not telling you what's happening in those five seasons, yeah. but, you know. So, yeah. So, so I had two thoughts there as you were, as you were telling me uh, about the project. Um, mm -hmm. One, um, talk about the difference um, in work for hire versus work for voice. When you say work for voice, what is it? What is it? As in, um, you talked about being being able to be more selective or choosing things because you're starting to move into more of a social justice sort of path. So mm -hmm. talk about the difference between doing work that was work for hire or that is work for hire versus the things that are um, the projects that you're really interested in or actually passionate about. Gotcha. Okay, so yeah, so work for hire, I think, um, that pretty much means like, you know, working at a company, right? When you, when mm. you say that? Yeah, yeah. so. It's working on a company or it's working for someone as a hired contractor. Um, yeah, or as a staff, a salary. Staff, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of work for hire versus working on like more of your passion or you being more selective, you know, there's a time and place, I think, for both of them. Um working for a, a company, I got a lot of experience there, especially working for an ad agency, because all of those things are like little movies. And so I got to get, you know, at one point working on beauty, another point working on toys, another part, part working on pharma, and all of those things are just a few months at a time. And so you like each of those things have different styles to them, you work with a different type of director for each of those things right so you learn a lot the only problem with that is that you can't pick what you want to work on you get assigned your projects right mm -hmm. so um that part was a little frustrating because sometimes i was working on stuff that honestly i did not want to work on like you know i don't want to work on butt cream today like that's not what i want to spend <laughs> that's not what i want to spend a few months working on but you kind of have to you don't have that say i remember one time i was telling one of my bosses that was like uh, i really don't like this what they're doing with this and she basically told me it's not your call and i was like you know what she's right it's not my call this is not my company i can't i only have but so much say you know um, but I still 
I'm appreciative of the time I spent there because I learned a lot how to run a set properly because you are running it for these big corporations. I learned how to schedule properly. You know, I think a lot of independent films um, kind of fly by the seat of their pants a little bit mm-hmm. with um, how they're structured. I knew, I know how to talk to a client, you know, all of those things I learned a lot from being a work for hire. Right. Um, and I take what I learned there. Um, Cause I think at this point I've kind of paid my dues in that, in that way. And now I can go ahead and work on the things that I'm really passionate about and really choosy about. Cause I, I think before you get to do all the things you're passionate about, you need to build that experience so that you can do those passion projects really well. Mm-hmm. Because if you try to do a passion project and you don't do it well, people are going to notice the flaws in it rather than focusing on the message you're trying to, you're trying to put out. But don't you feel like that's half of what our industry does anyway, is they look for the flaws and everything we do. And I know, but you try to minimize that as much as possible. <laughs> right. So I think that's one thing that's that's interesting. So as a professional, I find myself making things for other professionals, not for my actual audience. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. You you want the the accolades of the people who are really good at what they do. You know? Right. So it's like. I'm I'm working on a, a photograph or an, an edit or to tell a story that may not, I mean, it could be something really simple and stupid, to be honest. You know, this could be just something I'm going to post to Instagram, you know, on a story, on a joke. But right. the filmmaker in me, you know, I can't take a simple, I mean, no one can take a simple selfie. No one can take a simple video, but upgrade that to a thousand it's like oh well, i need i need a graphic i need the font right. this way like there are all these things that start to turn into production value that you feel like you have to add and you just don't tell the story mm-hmm. like you miss well, the moment of just telling the story right so well you still need to tell the story i mean i i always say i'm my harshest critic you know so I, it's just, that's not, as you become a filmmaker, that's not something you can turn off. And I don't think I do, I make films for other, to impress other filmmakers as much as, like, I need to impress myself. Like, I, I set very high standards for myself, mm-hmm. and I have to meet those, and, you know. So you don't think you're competitive? Hmm? You don't, you don't think you're competitive? Oh, I'm, I'm extremely competitive, but, you know, it's not like, if somebody says that they don't like my film, it's not like I'm going to go home and cry if I like it. Yeah, I get so, that. So, but who would you say, how would you say your competitiveness shows itself through this profession? Um, it? <laughs> if I go to a film festival and I see a crappy project win when I know mine was better, then I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, okay, um, they must have something else going on. Clearly. <laughs> you know? so, somebody sleeping with somebody. Like, <laughs> you know. Uh, is it Drew Hill? Somebody's sleeping. Exactly. In somebody's bed. <laughs> like, if I know that, if I, like, and with the same thing, if I know that their film was really good and, like, had better cinematography than mine did and stuff, like, 
cool. You deserve you deserve that. But if I know that thing was crap, yeah, then no. And if I, I but in the competitiveness, if I'm actually in a competition, I want to win. Yeah. Yeah, I want to be the best at whatever I'm doing at that point. Right. And but I uh, but in terms of what you were saying about like being very like you know, uh, you can never turn the filmmaker mind off. Like that happens whether I'm making it or I'm watching it. You know, especially, I don't know about other people on the crew, but as a producer, we have to watch everything. Like uh, I notice continuity mistakes like that, you know? Um, yeah, I notice like, you notice I can never turn it off. Like people tell me I'm the most annoying person to go to a movie with, uh, don't ask me what I think about a movie, unless you really want to hear like a full a breakdown. Full, a full breakdown. That, that character was one dimensional. She had an earring on in this shot and not in another. Like, like I'll rip it apart and not even trying to be mean. It's just like, that's just my producer brain. I can't turn it off, which is also why I get, I can't, I have no patience for a bad commercial. I have no patience for a bad movie. You know, it's just because I'm like, who was the producer who didn't catch any of that? Tyler Perry, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, you know, in those situations, because I'll, I'll say because I've worked with many of those people on those crews, understanding how quickly they move to shoot now comparatively to traditional filmmaking and traditional shooting, they don't do the same diligence because they're moving faster right which is not good well i mean it's it's a reality well there, there's two i think two parts of that on one hand um when you look at the above the line and what he was able to do as a business it was fantastic uh, i mean i mean tyler, tyler Perry, what he did for film Tyler Perry is like the first trap star film. I guess. I mean, the garbage company picked up lots of garbage, but it's still garbage, you know? So Yeah, but so and I don't want to harp on this dude forever, because I don't I don't wanna uh get beat up in my comments later. <laughs> okay. Because I'm in Atlanta, you're in New York. Um <laughs> I know, but hey, I mean people because you know, yeah. I do home to Atlanta. People yeah, always, you know, but they'll they'll come find me. I, I've been on the property. They'll they'll. That's okay. They can, they can but um, throw your daggers at me. I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I think it's interesting because um, as a business, looking at what he did. So you gave me a million to make the movie. Okay, I made it. You gave me a million in six weeks to make the movie. Okay, I made it in Eight days. four weeks. I made it in four weeks for 700000 and then made something else with the other two weeks, which cinematically, no, it doesn't have that same Scorsese-style quality. But when you talk about flipping your dollar, like, he, he really figured out how to flip the dollar. And I think on one hand, sure, you, you lose quality and you lose... Uh, things like continuity, you lose things like um, finding the best take because they only did one or two takes and moved on. Um, so they just 
are rapidly cutting together a show. But I think when you look at, he's got four or five shows that are syndicated. You know, he was able to turn around and flip that money and upgrade three times to get to the Fort McPherson space he's at now. Four times. Mm -hmm. There were other, I think where he sacrificed an actual film quality, he was building equity somewhere else. I think if he wanted to, he'd come back now and add that quality to his films, but I think that's just become, I would say the, uh, reality style of shooting a film. You know, like out for you know, reality television shoots super fast too. Yeah, so the reality style of film almost. Yeah, well, I think that goes back to like the different styles of producers too. You know, like whether you're going to just try to do things for budget and efficiency, or whether you really are caring about the art and the quality and you know, I, I'm not willing to sacrifice that stuff. It might take me a little longer to make that body of work, but I want everything that's in my body of work to be quality. And right. I'm, not, I'm not willing to sacrifice the quality, the continuity. I'm not willing to do all of that stuff to water down my body of work. So what would you say to uh, an artist or a professional whom is maybe working for hire or maybe trying to find their way into the industry but haven't quite found their niche or their voice yet what would you say to them to help them find that um i would say you know even if you're working for hire because i was working for hire for like 10 years but on the side i was still doing what i was passionate about so if you know what you're passionate about take the little time that you have that you're not working for hire and do your passion project, just hone it, you know? My first movie that launched on HBO, I was still working full time while I did that. I took vacation time and sick days and stuff to do it, you know? I didn't, my vacation days were not ever going on vacation. They were, I was usually out shooting a movie. So, you know, you work for hire to pay your bills and then you do what you're passionate about on your nights and your weekends and your vacation time. Gotcha. So, that's one thing you always hear about, but you never really get a chance to understand what's going on behind the veil. People talk about um, selling a show or uh, selling a movie or getting something on an HBO or a streaming platform, something like that. What is that actual process and how does that typically work? Well, if your uncle is not Steven Spielberg or something, um, usually <laughs> you have, you make your film. Um, for me working in advertising, I was able to like pull a lot of favors. Um, cause one of the biggest secrets I think to advertising is that a lot of those people wanted to be filmmakers anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I just called in through advertising. You work with so many different people. You work with, um, you know, DPs, you work with editors, you work with colorists, you know, um, you work with audio mixers. And so I use those people or those people were willing to help me make the film, right? So Mm -hmm. the first thing is you got to find a way to make the film by yourself because as a first time filmmaker, um, you're not going to not 
many people are going to be willing to just throw money at you when you don't have a body of work to already show them. So that's one of the things like the chicken or the egg mm. <laughs> kind of things where it's like, you've got to find a way to make the film um, before you can get people to want to fund you to make a film. It's, it's hard. The first stage is going to be hard. I'm not even going to lie about that, but you make the film. Um, and then um, I made the film through like us putting together money plus you know, all the favorites I called in from through advertising, got getting people, getting the editor to edit the commercial for almost, I mean, the movie for almost free because he was working on my Advil commercials. So, you know, it took him about a year to edit it, but he did it because he wanted to make a movie, right? So through favors and um, savings accounts, we made the film. Um, then we entered it into film festivals, um, started like, getting to different festivals, winning awards here and there. Um, and then eventually we were able to get what's a, a sales agent. So I think um, a big part of the process that people don't know is that you're not going to necessarily just walk into Netflix or HBO or any of those places um, by yourself. You know, you really need like a sales agent and an entertainment lawyer. Those are the people who are actually a lot more easily accessible to uh, average Joe. And but they know everybody because they negotiate the deals with all of these networks. So that's one of the most important things. Before you even try to conflict, contact Netflix and let them know that you have a show, you really need to contact the sales agent that research them and see what shows that they have, that they're a part of because that means they have contacts at those networks and those films. Okay. So through getting, and those, a lot of those sales agents go to film festivals because they're looking for the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so a sales agent is kind of like an actor's agent where they are going and representing your show. So gotcha. we got a sales agent. Um, they were able to, um, you know, get the attention of HBO um, and HBO, you know, came interested. They wanted to see it. They had a lot of questions, <laughs> you know, and then, um, I think, you know, it's part that and part the stars just aligned, you know, the story was about an immigration, um, story and that we shot that back in like 2013, 2014, way before any of this stuff with Trump and all of that stuff was going on. Right. But around the time when they, after it was going through the festivals and all of that stuff, all of that was like bubbling over, you know? So I think it was a good film. It gotten some attention. There was a lot going on in the world politically. It just like all lined up and they, they bought the show. I mean, they bought the movie. So, but like through the process, um, if you don't know anybody, get into film festivals because that's you just got to get exposure. That's the biggest thing. You got to get some type of exposure for your project. If you don't already have a connection, then get a sales agent or an entertainment lawyer. And then that is going to help you get into these networks. Now, not saying that once you have the entertainment lawyer and the sales agent that you're going to like, it's a sure thing. Like they have to work and the network still has to be interested, but at least you can get your foot in the door. Okay. So the average person is gonna say, I don't have a regular lawyer. How do I find how do I find to get to an entertainment lawyer and like well is expensive and how much lead work are they doing for you? 
Is it like, um, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but like, uh, is it like, um, when you have a, 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 a artist has a manager, but he staff the book his own shows, is it that kind of situation? They, they're just, they're kind of, you not know, dot the I, I mean, dot the I's and cross the T on the contract for you? No, not, not necessarily. It's, um, different uh agents and lawyers have different agreements with you but mm. the best way to like get to one because they're going to make the most money based off of your product just like how when i tell actors i'm like you shouldn't be paying your agent anything you know the act the agents that want to charge you for being your agent are usually the scam artists because they're supposed to make 10 percent of every job that you book that's how they're mm. supposed to make their money so a good sales agent is going to make money based off of them selling your show right so they need to see that you can make money for them so the best way to get with a sales agent is to make a good film and run into that person at the film festivals that's the best way or you can research a good sales agent if you know that you have a film playing in a film festival and you know especially if you have a film playing in the festival you get comp tickets invite the agent to come and see the film you know, be like, hey, I have some comp tickets. We'd love for you to come check it out. Some, a lot of them, them will already be there anyway and will like approach you if they really like the film. But that's another way you can kind of get them to get their eyeballs on it. And once they see that you can make a good product, then they will want to work with you. If you make a really good film that gets into like a Sundance or Cannes or Tribeca or something, they're going to be actually calling you before you even like, before the film even screens probably. Hmm. You know, pre-screeners so the first step to getting a sales agent is to make a good film and get into a festival um and then so but after you sign with the sales agent there are different agreements some of them you have to pay on retainer like you got to pay for their time to go out and pitch the show some of them will probably get paid you, it, I don't know. It's a negotiation process. I I can say like everybody, every sales agent is different. Some of them pay on retainer. Some of them will just make money once the show is sold. Some of them you have to pay them a like a tiny retainer up front just because they do have to do some work to submit you to these different shows, make the phone calls, and then you could a- arrange with them for them to get more on the back half of when it's sold. Some of them, if they really really believe in your show, will get what's called points which basically means they put an ownership, um, they get an ownership stake in your show too. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, you know, and that's something that, uh, but you have, your show has to be really good for them to basically want to take less money in cash and um, more money on, more possible money on the back end by being an owner of the show so that when your show gets sold or when it gets like, you know, you make action figures out of your products or something. Any type of syndication or other royalties. Exactly. But for that, you have to really believe that the show could possibly go somewhere because then you're putting in the sweat equity up front. So um, there's no like one boiler point contract that I could say is for a sales agent. Everyone is different, you know, but it's mostly, it's going to be based off of your, your, the quality of your work. Okay. How much money they think they can make off of you? Yeah. It does. Yeah. So and, are you? 
And the ones that are sales agents slash lawyers are not only going to pitch your show, but can stay with you through the process of negotiating your show too. Sometimes you need two people, a sales agent and a lawyer, or mm. somebody can combine them. So, yeah. Okay. So there you go for you um, aspiring filmmakers, full-on filmmakers, uh, show writers, pilot creators. You kind of just got a little bit of a blueprint. So that's a way that you can get your project to the next level. Make it good, find your uh, lawyer, your entertainment lawyer, and then find a sales agent. And then uh, off to the races you go. Races you go, yeah, and don't also don't be afraid to fire your sales agent too if they're not like getting you into the right rooms and stuff. Really? Yeah, like what is, what does that time process typically look like? It's forever, like yeah. when you're when you don't have like a face, you don't have a celebrity in your thing. If you're a new person, if your story is not like a recognizable story, like if you're not making the story of Michael Jordan or whatever and you're mm. you have to like explain to people the idea you have to convince them why it's um going to be something that people resonate with like you know there are a lot of like different factors that go into the time length um and who will be interested like I, uh, like I said too like what's going on in the world at the time also plays into it so um I think one of the big things is to not just get a sales agent, but you have to know that sales agent is going to be a bulldog for your project. Mm. You know, that, um, cause some of them, once they get you on a retainer, it's just like, Oh, it's just another stream of money coming in. But you want to have someone who believes in your project and is going to like knock down all those doors until they can make someone at those networks believe in it too. And if you don't feel that you have that, then you should look for another sales agent. Hmm. They don't tell you you got Moxie, kid. You got yeah. Moxie. You're gonna make it. Exactly. You might want to drop them. Exactly. <laughs> They're exactly. soaking for the funds. Yes, which I'm not gonna lie, it's hard. It's hard to do when you're get first getting started out because you might not even have that many sales agents that are interested in the beginning until you've actually like sold something. It's the whole just like getting your initial film made. It's it's hard mm -hmm. to get the first one out. But once you've like built a name for yourself, you'll have a lot of options. Nice. Yeah. Well, folks, you see, this is why I had to have Tiffany on. She's such a wealth of knowledge <laughs> and uh, is so happy to share and give it to us. Um, talk about your teaching journey and how that started and what that's how been for you. Oh, that's it's so teaching. Um, you know, I always told myself, because my both grandparents on both sides of my family were teachers, um, or edu like uh, both of them actually were headmasters of schools, which basically means that they owned schools back in Guyana. And then I had lots of uncles and aunts that were teachers. So teaching has been in my blood, you know, and I love, I love teaching, right? Um, but it's something that I told myself I wasn't going to necessarily do until like the sunset of my career. I was like, oh, you know, when I get older and I want to slow down a little bit, I'm going to go back to NYU and teach. That would be my way of giving back. I did not anticipate being a teacher at this point in, uh, in my career, but it kind of just happened. Um, 
basically what happened is I was, uh, I may, I would, as the, the internship program that I was in um, has a gala at the end of the, every summer where like the interns graduate and, um, and, you know, they bring back a lot of the alumni, you know, for that. And so at that point I needed to, they asked me to make a video for that gala that was basically going to be highlighting the person who in that uh, program was assigned to be my mentor. Cause you get assigned a mentor when you come into the program. So right. As a producer, you get assigned another producer to like help you out as you go through the program and be like your guide throughout the, your career. Um, so my mentor was getting honored because he was in the um, industry for 40 years and had mentored a lot of people through that same internship program. And so they asked me to put together a video um, that where a lot of the, his mentees spoke about how great he was and stuff. And so I, you know, gathered all those videos, put it together, played it at this gala and it went over very well. He cried. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. Rose, rose petals came showering from the sky. Showered down, smoke came out. It was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at that um, gala, not only is it like the interns that are graduating, but like that internship co uh, uh, program placed interns at uh, agencies all over the country. It's called MAPE, by the way, Multicultural Advertising Internship Program. So any like juniors and seniors in college that might want to be interested in advertising, definitely look them up. They're great. Um, so there were people from all these advertising agencies, like the presidents of all the advertising agencies were at this gala. Plus, because they pull college students stuff, representatives from all these universities were at the gala also. And mm. so I, I didn't even really think about it. I was just doing the video for my mentor. And, but it got exposure to all these different people. And so after uh, the gala, like, at the like networking point in the gala I struck up a conversation with this guy and um you know he was like I love that video that was great yada 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 um and then we somehow got into the topic of like teaching and he was like have you ever thought about teaching and I was like well you know I thought that you know when I got older I would do it and stuff and he was like I there's something about your energy I really like can you come just meet me at my office and stuff. I didn't even really do that much research on him, but I went like a few days later, later, met him at his office. Turns out he's the head of the communications department at the New York City College of Technology. I showed him some of the stuff I've been working on. Um, um, I, at that point, I'd also taught a few like high school classes, but just like, you know, as a low-key kind of summer campy type of thing um and he basically after seeing my work he hired me on the spot and asked me and so I teach the freshman intro to film at the New York City College of Technology um yeah I know so I'm a professor so he told you he was the, the headmaster of what he was the head of the communications department right and immediately the first thing you heard in your head was we believe the children are the future. Teach <laughs> exactly. them well. Show them the way. <laughs> show them the way. <laughs> I know. Whenever I'm heading out to, to go teach, I usually, because uh, I usually have to leave the studio I'm working at, and I tell them, 
I'm, I'm going to teach the children. And then we just throw off this chain and they're like, teach them well and let them lead the way. And I'm like, show them all the beauty they possess inside. <laughs> it doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. But teaching has been um, very, very, very rewarding. I, I really, really enjoy it. Um, just especially because I teach the freshmen. So they come in. A lot of them come, um, like the school I teach at isn't like, you know, it isn't, the kids are not like the kids who I went to NYU with in terms of like they come in already knowing how to shoot and edit and things like that. A lot of them come in with an interest in film, but don't like haven't really worked with cameras and um, editing equipment and stuff before. So they come in not knowing like much about the technical side and then like throughout the semester they start to learn more and more I just love like seeing them at the end and seeing the work that they do like it's mm -hmm. it, you know and it's it's just really rewarding seeing them like start to grasp those concepts um and just seeing them like fall in love with filmmaking um so that I also feel like it keeps me sharp as a filmmaker because I think after you've done something um like for years you kind of do it on autopilot but then when you have to explain something to somebody like me having to explain why white balance is necessary me having to explain the rule of thirds makes me realize like it keeps me you know in tune to why you do the things that you do right you know so that and then also um I teach a lot of students of color and I think the most rewarding thing I got was when one of the students came up to me at the end of last semester it was a um, African-American girl and she said you know I really really enjoyed your class it was really fun you know I learned so much but the most like thing that's going to stick with me is that I saw someone who looks like me who's actually doing it and I it really makes me feel like I could do it too and I was like oh I can retire now. This is great. <laughs> you know, like not, not yet, not yet. In my mind, I retired today, but I still got a few things left to do. <laughs> I, still, I still, I still, I still uh, have. Still to got a few things to do. Exactly, but you know, those are the most rewarding things: seeing them get it, seeing them be inspired. You know, um, when they come back, you know, because they're I've been doing it for a few years now, so a few of them. Are like old enough to like be hunting for internships and one of my previous students came back and told me that she got two internships offers one for mate the program that i was in nice. um and then one to work on jimmy fallon and she was like which one should i take and i'm like girl either one you'll be fine like yeah. <laughs> so you know seeing them succeed almost feels like they're my own kids you know right so, yeah you definitely do get that feeling i um I uh, was teaching at a school here in Atlanta for a few years, and um, one of those moments that you can't, like, pay for, I was at the Hawks game, right? Yeah. Took my mom to the Hawks game, and we're literally, like, you know, sitting, it's, like, half, almost halftime, and yeah. some guys walk, you know, up to us, because they've got, you know, their seats are, like, next to ours. And a guy scoots by and then looks over and it's one of the my former students that I taught when I was at the college. Uh -huh. And you know, that uh that uh moment where 
you know, oh man, Miss, you know, he's calling me, you know, by my by my last name. Oh man, Mr. Mr. Whitehead. Oh, it was so great to see you. Oh my God, who's this witch is? It's like it's my mom. Oh my God, it's just this is son. You had such a great son. He taught me so much. I'm learning, you know, like I'm out here, you know, working and you know, yeah. when I met him, he was just out of the military and was looking for something to transition to do. And now he um, is filmmaking, he's doing music videos, he's, you know, getting acknowledged in publications and stuff. And it's been like incredible to just see um, the way his career sort of taken off from this yeah. interest and in not really knowing anything to like now, um, you know, being a, a budding successful creative. Right. It's like those moments you don't, you know, you can't really pay for them. You know, it, it, it's a feeling of um, being able to pass on um, the things that were valuable to you, to someone else that will actually value them. Exactly. Yeah. What was um, what was something that you wanted to give your students that you feel like you didn't get when you were in school? Mm, um, I wanted to give my students, I think, um, and this is something I do on like the last day of class. You know, because going back to the, like the work for hire versus work for passion thing, I wanted to let my students know that they needed to develop skills and I want them to be more independent than I think what our generation was kind of geared to as we were going through the school process. I think we were geared to a lot of like getting jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted, well, I've tried to empower my students from early on to like develop your skills. If you can develop the skill to be an editor, you can edit anywhere, you know? I wanna, um, I try to let them know that, you know, their possibilities are endless, especially in this uh, generation where, you know, you can make a film and put it up on YouTube and get a lot of eyeballs on it, you know? So I definitely try to empower them, I think, more than um, when we were going through college. And it's more just because of the d different opportunities that have developed technologically, even since we were in school. You know, YouTube was like just starting out when we were there, you know? Right. I mean, I definitely feel there were, um, we were kind of came, we're kind of the bridge era. Like we're the first generation of actual digital media when digital media is, fully activated in all levels right um but also the last generation of film like when it had when it had to be filmed and that was the only option and live editing and line cutting so there's this um i guess there was this mentality shift that we've sort of lived through mm-hmm um, or came came of age through. Exactly. We had to, I mean, some of my first shows, I, I had to load film by fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I always think back to this video I did for Nelly, uh -huh. Move That Body, 
and they gave we were shipped we shot that on super 35 film yeah and we had 400 foot mags which is four minutes of film for people who don't know so imagine you got four minutes of film in the camera you better get it right you gotta get it right i've got to pull that mag off and change it in a tent with no light Mm -hmm. and not that much experience Right. Yeah. Seal it because if any light gets into the, the film tent, the film will be exposed and it'll be ruined. Mm-hmm. And then put the new piece of film, like load that in the can and have that like sealed and ready before I can even open the bag and upload it. And right. Film being mechanical, um, the actual gears that you see on the side of the film are actual, there's a piece of metal that goes through those, mm-hmm. winds it through. So if the, the gears on that are messed up or the film will crunch and fold and turn into a ball inside of the camera and it's a whole deal, right? So my first show, one of my first shows, I'm praying to God on this 400, you know, four foot mags that like, I get it right. I don't run this film, you know. To us being in this digital world where now you're praying you don't ruin the card, right? But you can check the card, cover the card (laughs) most of the time. (laughs) Um, So I think, with all that being said, it was like there was this um, analness for repetition for you doing the one job really well. Versus you um, having to know and be comfortable with multiple jobs in a okay enough kind of setting. Right. You agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You have to be a little bit more flexible, you know. You can, now you can, like, shoot. You can edit. You know, you can do all those things yourself. Yeah, I feel like um, during the era when we were coming out of college, I feel like, and maybe that's, that was here, I'm not sure if it was, you felt the same way, but I feel like it was very much still more geared towards go get a job, go do one thing. There wasn't this thought that you could, there wasn't this thought that you could be your own creator. Right, which is what the the students who are coming up today have that ability to do. So that's why I try to tell my students like the possibilities are endless. So uh, I do, but I do like uh, let them know the good things that came out of us having to shoot film. And um, like, so I tell them, you know, the trials and tribulations of only having, you know, 200 feet of film, right? right. I told them that meant that we had to rehearse our actors really, really well. We had to know what we were doing before we shot because once we shot, that was that was all the school gave us and we were all broke college students. We did not have money to buy more film. And so I told them like, because of that, I'd still take those skills of like, rehearse your actors before you get to set. You, you know, mm-hmm. you act like you don't have a card that you could just dump and start over you can't just be shooting endlessly you know? right. so those things those 
skills from that time um, you take with you, but um, you have the possibility to do as much as you want. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, try to empower these kids. Totally. Yeah. Well, it has been amazing talking to you and getting to hear um, all the aspects of your story and to really shed some light on the different avenues and different processes and the different moments that you had and how you got to be the incredible creative you are. Oh, thank you. So very appreciative of you spending time with me today. Um, it was it was great and I'm happy that we got a chance to really share all this with um, our viewing public. Yay, hi viewing public. Yes, happy to be here. Thank you. Um, let everyone know where they can find you and um, where they can look for your stuff and what you have coming up so they can make sure that they support. Yes, um, well you can look on my website. I, I try to keep it as updated as possible. That's tiffanyjackman.com. Um, you can follow me on my Instagram. That's tiffyjack85. Um, in terms of the TV show, I would love for you guys to go check out the system. It's on Quelly TV. That's K-W-E-L-I-T-V.com. Um, I believe you can get like a seven-day free trial. So check it out. And it, that, that network also has a lot of other great content. And it's mostly based on, around like um, the African diaspora. So it's a lot of filmmakers of color on there. So you should definitely check that out. Um, but yeah, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll you'll see other things that I'm working on. So I try to keep that as updated as possible. Dope. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tiff. We're uh, definitely looking forward to seeing more of you and uh, I'll definitely have you back on another edition so we can chop it up more and talk about some other things. Um, anytime, anytime. Thanks so much for joining us for today's edition of Why I Got In. We really appreciate you sticking out with us. Um, Make sure you like, subscribe, leave comments. Let us know what you think. Um, also, make sure you check out Art of Skywind to check out all the art. You can buy pieces for your place or for your space. And um, we do customs as well, custom photo shoots, all that kind of stuff. So make sure you check us out. Um, yeah, thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.